Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 6th of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. If you are in Trim in County Meath today, you'll be joined by some very important persons. The government will hold its cabinet meeting at 12 o'clock at the offices of the OPW. Government press says that there will be a media opportunity after the meeting, but our request to speak to the Taoiseach, Leo Radker, has not been responded to. As security men talk into their lapels, a man in a gabardine suit will be watched closely in case his bow tie is really a camera. Yes, trim will seem different today to people going about their daily business between the blue lights of the police protecting the ministers, none of whom are explaining the logic of coming here to the local radio station. No doubt all will feature in a photograph for the front page of the Meath Chronicle. But wouldn't you think that the local minister, Regina Doherty, if not the Taoiseach, would want to explain an occasion like this to local people? Regina Doherty has declined our request. Odd, but the minister is not available again to talk to her local radio station. Regina Doherty, however, has, as you know, gone to ground in recent times since she started taking advice from a spin doctor paid €6,000 a year over a government pay cap or an annual salary of €107,109. Good communications is incredibly important. Um, I think one of the criticisms that would be yielded against um, government, and this is any government, is that it's not just good enough to do what you're doing in the interest of people. They have to know exactly what you're doing. And so when I went looking last year uh, for somebody, obviously I went looking for the best. I think you and I well know we've been uh, debating in this studio for nearly 10 years now that I have a habit of sometimes putting not just one foot into my own mouth, but two foot or two feet when I opened my mouth. So I went looking mm. for the best. Um, we interviewed quite a number of Is that why you went people. to ground over the course of the last couple of years? As I said at the outset, it's a relatively rare interview with uh, the Minister. The amount of time I probably do have to do media um, is probably a lot diminished and I think that's the right thing to do. But that's why it's so important when you do do media that it has to be good, effective uh, and well communicated. Mm. We have and you don't shoot yourself in the foot by saying something like Enda Kenny should retire. Uh, some people uh, would make well, the I think claim. all you're doing is describing how much I have matured over the last couple of years as a politician. So or anyway. disappeared. Uh, 
uh, being no, kept out of the media, uh, perhaps Actually, uh, by I'm, a professional. Uh, some people would say uh, there I'm are people in this world vocal. who know the price of anything, but no, don't know the value of anything. No, I think, uh, in fairness, Michael, I'm probably is it one value of the most for money? vocal cabinet ministers that we have. That's Regina Doherty being very vocal about a month ago, and uh, that interview was uh, the first interview uh, that uh, she did with me. I think in uh, about six months before that uh, and as you know uh, she would have been on the programme talking about the price of peas and other things regularly before that but anyway uh, let's get back uh, to the cabinet meeting in Trim because when we look at the photographs of the ministers in Trim next week we might wonder what they might have said to us about issues like Michael Lowry and Noel Grealish keeping the government in office had they been available to talk to us today or issues like hate speech or TDs claiming compensation, not to mention housing and homelessness, or the cost of the children's hospital. Let's talk about the cost of uh, the children's hospital. Imelda Munster, Sinn Féin TD for Loud is on the line. A very good morning to you, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, you were talking about this at uh, the Public Accounts Committee yesterday. How much is the children's hospital going to cost? Well, that's it. None of us actually know uh, exactly, but what became clear yesterday um, was that uh, the guaranteed maximum price Initially, they are all along the government and the um, the board of the National Children's Hospital have said that it would be 1.4 million, um, 1.4 billion, sorry, um, for the construction costs. But fitting in that, it would amount to 1.7 billion, and that that was the guaranteed maximum price. But it appears that perhaps the government have been just trying to draw a line under the controversy because that's not the case and we discovered that yesterday at the the public accounts committee and and you know it's clear the government didn't want to admit it the costs are going to be a lot more that the the guaranteed maximum price is not guaranteed and it's not maximum and i suppose what the the government were doing when they're um because when people hear the words guaranteed maximum price well you just you believe that's the total cost that's what you believe well that's at least the total cost Mm. But it's not. And it appears it could go... Nobody actually knows what it's totally going to cost, not the minister, not the board... You know, but it, it looks. Why like is that? It is, is that because the contractors are looking through a big, huge window at Fred Barry and uh, the rest of uh, the board of uh, the Pediatric Hospital Development Board uh, coming up the road at them? Well, the. the the, the PwC were commissioned by the HSE on behalf of the government to do a report on this con- whole controversy, you know, and what went wrong and um, recommendations, etc. But one of and I. But you as much as said that to Fred Barry, didn't well, you? Well, I did, yeah, yeah because yeah, yeah. Um, on in the report it, it said about the contract management, and it said that the contractors uh, understand the contractual relationship better than the National Pediatric Hospital Board, allowing them to exploit opportunities to increase prices and mm. that comes back to when you, when you were quizzing them yesterday anyway and there's um well, you were asking him if he knew what he was doing uh, or if he had the expertise to be doing what he, he's doing he said he was uh, gobsmacked by the question well, yes but i mean that's all right being gobsmacked if, if he wants to be gobsmacked but uh, we're talking about public money public funding uh, an overrun that initially when it was launched the children's hospital tendering process in 2013, yeah, 2013, it was 790 million. Now it's in 2018, it's 1.4 billion, but it's actually 1.7 billion when you include the overall cost. And that uh, 
that is expected to exceed that 1.7 billion. So, of course, you want to know what experience. Now, I'm not saying that there, there, there's not fast experience on, the, on that board, mm. but there's just not fast experience in leading a building, the building of a hospital project like that. Nobody on the board has ever built a hospital from scratch. Mm. And the previous members of the board had resigned because of the cost overruns and all of that. And they've replaced people with no real hands-on experience of ever building a hospital from scratch, leading a project. And that's, that's deeply concerning. Well, I was gobsmacked myself uh, trying to understand the conversation yesterday because you were both talking uh, about a guaranteed maximum price. Mm. Now, forgive me, but I would have understood that to mean that there's a maximum that can be paid and it's guaranteed that it won't go over that amount. Well, that, that's what I said to you a few minutes ago. When people hear, oh, there's a guaranteed maximum yeah. price, that you believe, well, well, fair enough, that's the total cost, it won't go over it. But then you were having a conversation about what the price might be mm-hmm. uh, and if it will be the guaranteed maximum price. And I started to wonder, do I understand what guaranteed means because if it's guaranteed to be the maximum price it can't exceed that that's guaranteed but you were discussing what the price might be yeah. uh, we'll hear a little bit what uh, of what fred barry had to say to you about this well the contractors claims are going in on an ongoing basis a number of those claims have been through the the, the, the process with contractors claims is if if they are if they aren't agreed they are referred to the employer's representative for determination. No, I know that. I know okay, there's a you, process you know, you know of 20 process. days okay. and 20 days and 10 days and 10 days. And so on. Okay. But I'm saying those contractors' claims are going in on an ongoing basis. I did see somewhere that you said 50% of those claims currently had been... Had been processed. Processed, oh, so, yeah. Uh, yes. And they were kind of the smaller claims, but the 50... There's a, a further 50%, and that's not to say... I mean, those claims could be going in for the next three years and beyond that indeed. So how can you actually say, can you explain to me, maybe it's myself, how can you actually say that there's a guaranteed maximum price when these contractors' claims are ongoing and will be for years to come? I think you said the other day that um, the final accounts, it could be 2024 and after before they're actually, before we know what's what. That, that is correct. So where does the guaranteed maximum price, it kind of makes a nonsense of that, does it not? I suppose the, gar- the, the, the guaranteed max price arrangement with the contractor is a guaranteed maximum price from him for work as described in the contract at that time. Right. Uh, I'm not sure uh, why he was laughing, uh, but it is farcical, isn't it, Imelda Munster? It's unbelievable. I mean, he, he eventually conceded that they um, they've no idea what the final cost will be, you know, um, and so it's not guaranteed? Look, that's a complete and utter nonsense. As I said to you, um, the government, I suspect the government had brought, you know, had they, they went with this guaranteed maximum price and the board, you know, and the, in the contract so that it would give the impression that that's, that's the, the top end. It's not going to exceed that. Right. But in fact, we now know it is going to exceed it right. because those contractor claims, as I said there in the clip, but they're, they're ongoing and will be ongoing. And they'll keep coming for they're years coming, and years yeah. and years, as, as you were as explaining the, to us the there. The yeah. yeah. had said that um, with the inexperience, you know, of the, the board in relation to 
they had said about the the contractors allowing them to exploit or the, you know allowing them to exploit opportunities to increase prices hmm. that's all wide open do you know what would really worry people listening to that? Uh, they've been told uh, that there's a guaranteed maximum that will be spent on broadband. Well, that's that's the other thing, you know. But you look at the the history, you know, of um, public procurement in this state. You know, it's it's. But we've a guaranteed maximum price here, which is going to be exceeded. So that guarantee means nothing. Does the guarantee that the maximum price? For broadband will not be exceeded, and does that mean anything? Well, that's—I mean—that's the worry, isn't it? You know, uh. but I had raised them about um, the the fact that uh, the the particular type of procurement, and I had asked them what you know in relation to what's the procurement and the and the comp, the contractors and all of that. and what research they'd done, particularly to ensure you know that there would mm. be no cost overruns. Because um, the, they had said that past performance, I'd asked about when, you know, picking a company for, for or a contractor for a, a job of this magnitude, um, would their past performance be taken into account? And they had said, no, the past performance was not examined and it is not examined in state projects. Mm. And what I found mind-blowing was, they, they actually said then, just as a matter of fact, oh, but it's always examined in uh, private projects, mm. you know, in the private sector. Mm. So there is a gaping hole there that allows for... But sure, it's, no, it's, it's no bother really, is it? I mean, I think there's about two million of us in this country who are working and I think we're all willing to get up uh, and work every day uh, and for as long as it takes, for as much as it costs uh, to make sure that this happens regardless of uh, whether it's value for money. But, yeah, but I mean, it's the it's the everybody wants to see the National Children's Hospital, but mm. I think people are just sickened that this kind of carry on. Ah, but sure. Going on. Does, does it and matter? I mean, we, we we'll keep getting up every day. We'll go to work. We'll pay our taxes, mm. uh, and, and it doesn't matter how long it takes or how much it costs or whether it's value for money. We'll do that. Uh, sure, there's no problem in terms of spending this money. It's it's stomach churning at times, you know. Mm. And even when you come back to the fact that past performances of particular contractors um, are not one of the procurement tender criteria, yeah. I mean that should be just, you know. Ah, it doesn't matter. Sure, sure, sure. There's know, a bottom, but there's a bottomless pit yeah, of money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's there. People are going out and working for it every day. It's there for but people to. The it's attitude there. yesterday. How dare yeah. you question me? You know, type of thing. That, well, it's, um, well, it's there for the authorities to spend. That's yeah, why. Yeah. That's why we live. We live to work to give them money to spend whatever way they want. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a crazy situation. And I suspect it will, the end cost will be two billion plus. Okay. Uh, two billion plus. And it's, it's, a, it's a crazy Well, sure, look, there's plenty of money there. All of us are, are, are going to get up to, uh, well, maybe not tomorrow, maybe Monday morning. Uh, uh, some people will get up tomorrow and, and Sunday morning as well. But uh, before we finish up uh, today, uh, can I just ask you uh, about uh, Sinn Féin private member's motion next week in the Dáil? Because John McGuinness has said that he'll vote against Owen Murphy if uh, there's a vote of confidence in him uh, at any stage now. That's uh, the Minister for Housing who survived one there this week. Uh, and this is significant uh, because it's a Fianna Fáil TD breaking ranks and gives Sinn Féin an opportunity because you have a motion on housing next week. How does the party intend to respond to this? Well, I don't know. I haven't spoken to them on it yet, but there was a motion of no confidence, as you know, uh, this this week 
uh, and um, you know that was it. Like so, I don't know if the party's considering it. John McGuinness is only one. Now I know that I think the, is it fifty six fifty six now at the minute, but it's 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 hard to know. But I mean, this nonsense talk about it would force an election. It wouldn't force an election. It's about holding the minister to for housing to to account. He's not doing his job. There was a housing protest outside uh, Leinster House yesterday, and some of the stories, um, I think clips of people talking. One woman was in a hub, and she's two children, and the the little boy. When she talks about the home, mm. the the little boy says, uh, "Our room," you know, and this is the second Christmas they're going to spend, and just the sheer misery. And everybody knows rebuilding Ireland isn't working, and you'd have much more respect. Mm. For the government. Okay, but there is Sinn scope for Sinn Féin. There is the scope for Sinn Féin uh, to... Oh, but br- here, Mike, you'd be the first then saying up, we were opportunist <laughs> if we did that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only asking... You'd be saying it's a, it's a stunt. It's a <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't say that last no, week. I, but I'd imagine, look, I'd I'd imagine there'd be, even if you were to try mm. and do it, there'd be a merciful panic and another of the independents or mm. someone would be rallied to support the government you know yeah. well um, I, I, I don't know I think it was Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil who said that last week I don't think I, I, I made any comment either way but, no, uh, but I'm just saying jo- mm, you know journalists yeah, mm. in, in particular not just, yeah. just yourself but, but you have a, a motion on housing calling for a rent freeze next week mm. there is scope to put pressure on the minister yeah. there may be reason now for that because of the position that John McGuinness is taking I suppose is the point that I'm putting to you mm. uh, Darren Murphy is gone Thomas Pringle will be back uh, and the government heavy reliant uh, on Michael Larry uh, and Noel Grealish Yes that's right and if if the the rent free if we manage to get that passed you know if um, Deputy Pringle and if Deputy John McGuinness support it then there's a good chance we get it we could get it passed but then you get back to you know which you get back to whether or not the government will implement it you know Mm. they've fought it vigorously, they've just completely ignored it. They've okay. the housing is just an absolute disaster at the moment and sometimes I think when you, you know, you're just constantly raising all of the the issues surrounding housing, whether it's half the shortage of private rental, the lack of affordable houses, three generations and four generations of family living in a house and people mm. just pinned to their collar paying rents. And it's as if it doesn't even touch the government. OK, well, you, 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 have, you have the prospect of uh, pinning something uh, to the Hopefully motion, which week, would yes. call into question the performance of government. Uh, we'll uh, watch that over the course of uh, the coming days. Uh, and uh, perhaps it will or will not result in an election. Time will tell. But we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Lau, the Melda Munster, who's a member of uh, the Public Accounts Committee. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. It was Aldi in Nace yesterday. Today, the AIFA is blockading uh, the Lidl distribution centre in Charleville, County Cork. And Adam Wood's beef editor with uh, the Irish Farmers Journal is on the line with us. Uh, good morning to you, Adam, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, this protest started at 7. It's going on until 7 o'clock this evening, is it? Yes, it's a very similar protest to yesterday's, Michael. Um, yesterday's was at, at Aldi, uh, just outside Nace. Um, and they blocked with say, lorries coming in, lorries going out. Uh, workers were allowed in, and it's the same story today in Cork and Charleville at Lidl. Um, I understand the tra- traffic problems down there already this morning in terms of guards on the road uh, trying to direct traffic. So yes, it's, mm. it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a programme of disruption from the AFA um, until they say beef prices increase. Is it fair? 
I guess it, it's a sense of frustration, Michael, that's out there with beef farmers. What we're seeing, I suppose, if we look back to the protests in August and September, we might say that we were on a par with the European price. But since that, China uh, has come into the fray. Um, there's an insatiable demand for protein in China at the mm. moment. And we're seeing international markets move on really, really quickly. We're seeing the north of Ireland is 50 cent ahead of the south of Ireland price at the moment. We're seeing the EU average price, we're 20 cents behind that. So it's very hard to argue, or it's very, it's very hard for processors to argue that a beef price increase uh, isn't needed there because really we're below the power in terms of our beef price at the moment. And yes, um, I think we need, it. we need a better beef price. At 3.45, our beef farmers are not making money, they're losing money, and there's a real sense of frustration out there. OK, but is it not true to say that there is agreement on all of that to some degree and that the argument, to a large extent, has ended and uh, that it has been recognised that prices are too low and that they have to come up and that they will come up? In fact, I think the Farmers' Journal has been reporting that prices are are about to rise. So is it a a case now that the IFA are looking on this advantageously, knowing that prices are going to rise, staging these protests and hoping to take credit for the increase? Or is that too cynical of you? Look, it's cynical, but there may be a little bit of that, Michael. But definitely, there's nothing as frustrating as listening to factories say that the market has turned, admitting that beef price must increase, but yet today we're still killing steers at 3.45, 3.50. The beef price has not moved on. Mm. Um, and, and, and if factories are coming out admitting that the market, they can't argue. Our intelligence shows us that our international market, both via the price index model that was that was brought in as a result of the beef task force on the 15th of November, that's shown an upward trajectory. The curve is on the way up in terms of all the markets that we sell our beef into. So why, why as of today, is, is our beef price not increasing? Yeah, but why are other people being disrupted as a result of something that is not actually an issue because it has already been resolved? I mean, we saw people being laid off from the factories when the blockades took place there. People undoubtedly are being disrupted in terms of going to and from work. Produce is not moving out of these centres. Shops are being disrupted. And indeed, consumers are having to put up with an inconvenience or face the prospect of that at least. Uh, as a result of somebody playing politics, if what you said a moment ago is correct? I guess farmers um, see the retailers, and the Irish Farmers Association see the retailers as a real problem here in terms of these retailers promote beef at a loss leader to get people into their stores. That devalues meat, um, we'll say, for the consumer. And it's, it's a real problem there in terms of there's a margin there for the retailer, there's a margin there for the processor, but there isn't a margin there for the farmer at the moment. So our, our supply chain is broken. And I suppose it's part of a bigger argument there as regards what, what way do we go forward from this. It's not just about maybe today's protest. We, we need real plans. And I suppose the task force was a positive last week in terms of we need to use that task force now to, to mm. solve issues around that whole beef supply chain. But at the moment, it's about price. And, and really, we have farmers going out of business at the moment in terms of finishing cattle at 345, 350. And that's not good enough. And, and retailers and processors need to step up here um, and, and deliver a margin and deliver an appropriate price that's only fair mm. when we see the, the markets that they are selling into improving that they pass some of that on to the beef farmers on the ground. Uh, and is it that uh, the timing of, of uh, this is uh, that the retailers don't want uh, to increase the price just now because we're coming into the time of the year where all retailers uh, enjoy the best sales over the course of uh, the 12 months and we all buy more than we need and more than we want for that matter and I'm sure it's the same with meat. 
Yes, and a lot of these contracts will have been locked in for a number of months, so it's a processor won't want to renege um, on, a, on, a, on a contract that they've given to a retailer because if they increase the price, then that eats into their margin. All, all these, we'll say, processors sell, they'll be forward to a lot of these, we'll say, retailers. But unfortunately, when on, at the first stage, that doesn't happen. And I suppose I've argued for this for a long time, that we need to look at a different way that farmers sell their beef to processors in terms of maybe a forward contract or some sort of a guaranteed price buying cattle in the autumn to finish them during the winter or finish them in the spring, blind, not knowing what price it's going to be is, is really mm. archaic and, and we need to look at new ways of doing that. Processors sign contracts with retailers a couple of months ahead. Why can't processors sign contracts with, with, with suppliers a couple of months ahead? Okay, but we're edging slowly towards an increase for the farmers. Uh, will it happen before Christmas or would you expect there to be disruption to the Christmas market? I would envisage that we will see an increase next week. I think maybe processors and retailers will come together now and say, look, we need to do something for farmers here. We can't have any more disruption. The IFA are adamant uh, that more disruption will take place. We've seen that yesterday. We didn't think it would happen as quick as again today. So obviously they, they, they mean what they say. Uh, and we will see further disruption, I'd say, next week if, 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 there is, if there doesn't come a beef price increase in the coming days. Today will tell a lot because mm. today agents will be ringing farmers for Mondays uh, we'll say booking in for, for slaughtering cattle so we'll know at the end of the day what beef price is going to be set for next week and whether an increase has happened uh, And what if it doesn't happen? What do you think uh, will happen as a, a result of that Adam? I would imagine that the IFA will continue the disruption and they'll, they'll look at different um, areas uh, we'll say of the country to, to hit some of these distribution centres they see these mm. distribution centres as being integral to to, to the retailers in terms of a lot of this stuff is delivered now just in time and they want Well they are of course yeah that's the thing uh, I mean they can cause huge disruption uh, it could uh, escalate and uh, it could lead to a shortage of all sorts in the shops I take it Yeah I suppose if it goes beyond 12, 24 hours I think um, listening to some of the commentators I think 12 hours they will get away with uh, but, but after that there would be some real disruption um, to some of those retailers so yes I suppose 12 hours allows for maybe more deliveries to be made that evening but yes for just in time things in terms of frozen maybe meat or frozen other frozen materials it does cause disruption to, and if you've seen any more than 12 hours we would see shortages on shelves around the country Okay we'll watch that space and uh, let's hope that the space is full of produce uh, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning Adam Wads Beef Editor with the Irish Farmers Journal. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, uh, the Winter General Meeting of uh, the Irish Catholic Bishops Conference heard uh, this week about a number of issues, including the protection of uh, minors in uh, the church, support for Trocra's Christmas appeal, homelessness, and how a lot can change over a period of uh, six months, and how bishops hope to meet with government uh, to discuss the situation with refugees and migrants. Let's talk about. Uh, some of uh, these issues with Bishop Michael Reuter, Auxiliary Bishop of Armagh. Good morning to you, Bishop Michael, and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. The bishops have called on all Catholic parishes and communities to welcome and assist refugees in local areas. You say that this is in light of the Gospel message. Is that a a message uh, that is going over the heads of some people in this country at the moment, do you think, Bishop? I think that uh, most Irish people, you know, are very welcoming and uh, would love to, be, to to welcome people who are coming from difficult situations. Most of our refugees and our migrants are, are fleeing from terrible situations, terrible situations of war, uh, of poverty, um, of abuse. 
And uh, I think most Irish people, the vast majority of Irish people, we always have had a great history in this country of, of, of welcoming uh, those who are in need and of helping those abroad. I think per capita, mm. we probably have uh, the, the best figures in the world for, for, for uh, donating to, to charity and to helping those who are in need. Okay. So I don't think that message is really getting going across people's head. I just think there's a little. Well, bit I, I did. Say, I did. I did say some people said, uh, yeah. with, with respect, yeah. Bishop, and, uh, and I, I fear that that probably is uh, the case. I think everything you said is very true about the vast majority of uh, people. But uh, I, I, I would have thought that uh, the concern that the bishops have about what you call an intolerant use of language in public and political discourse uh, is uh, something uh, that has led to you asking Christians in their language and actions to lead by example, to show the minority uh, how they should be acting if uh, they're to be Christian in the way they welcome these people. Yes, I, I would agree that there is a, a small group of people who are possibly trying to uh, to whip up a little bit of fear in relation to, to migrants and refugees. Uh, at the moment in the country, and they're doing that through the use of, of intolerant language, as we say. Uh, and, uh, you know, with the prevalence of social media nowadays and the ease in which people can get a message across, there is a possibility that that small minority of people will begin to have an effect on the majority. And, uh, you know, we're, we're asking people to be wary of that and people to, uh, to be on their guard uh, against such uh, language being used about other people, which is really an attempt, I suppose, to kind of dehumanise these people. That's often a tactic that's used. You know, mm. we want to to oppose something. It's to dehumanise the opposition in a sense. Uh, so, say, using the term terrorist about or trying to associate terrorism uh, with a refugee, uh, with a group of refugees. Um, makes people afraid uh, and naturally nervous. Uh, but the thing is, suppose that these people are actually fleeing from terrorism. Uh, they're fleeing from, from war situations. Mm. Uh, and like, we have a commitment to, I think, take in about 4,000 refugees. Uh, we've little over half of that commitment uh, taken in at this stage. Uh, so, you know, it's not a huge, it's not a huge figure, mm. but... Sometimes, through the use of language, the minority who are opposed to it can sometimes gender fear in people. OK, I'm not sure if you're referring to the comments made by the Fine Gael election candidate, uh, Rona Murphy, uh, when she talked about little children, very, very young children, coming here uh, under the influence of ISIS and needing to be deprogrammed. A terrible thing to say, I'm sure, about a- a- any child. But when we talk about a minority of people holding these views, do you think it's a significant minority, given how well she campaigned and uh, came second in the by-election in Wexford? I think there's, as I said, there's a kind of a, a growing fear uh, among people. You know, when you hear you hear a word like terrorism used uh, in such a situation, uh, that that can get people motivated uh, to vote in a particular way. Uh, but I'm not I'm not here to, to condemn any particular uh, politician or mm-hmm. any particular candidate or anything like that. That's that's a matter for them. That's a matter for their own uh, political parties. But what we, the bishops, want to do is just to, to reassure uh, the Catholic people and uh, to remind them of the, uh, the, the need to 
to to always uh, be compassionate towards those who are uh, in need and on the peripheries of society and and uh, who are looking for our help. Okay. Uh Do you wish to speak to me about homelessness? Uh, The bishops have concluded that a lot could change over the course of six months. Uh, That would be an unusual six months given the last three years that we've had in this country. Yeah, well, there is a feeling that, you know, that with a concerted effort that uh, there's a possibility that that something could be done about it. Um, Like, they're talking about um, the the recent uh, publication uh, of of, uh, material... Um, you know, a lot can be done in six weeks. It's done across the churches, uh, not just the Catholic Church, uh, but the various different Christian denominations uh, have have produced uh, the, this, these materials. And um, just really, we're talking about the, the the effect of homelessness, and you know that within six months, with a concerted, unified effort, I think that something radical could be done. Uh, about the homelessness situation, or be- at least begin to turn the situation around. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think we have to put resources uh, into public housing. Um, that has to ha- that has to happen. We have to to move away from you know just purely looking at housing as a consumer's product and looking at it as something just for the private enterprise. We have to. It's a basic mm. human right uh, for people to be housed. And, I uh, and the importance of that, you've been discussing the importance of having a place that you call home and what that means to families and to family life. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. I mean, it's, you can imagine what it's like for a young family to live in a hotel room uh, for several months or maybe for, for several years. I don't think uh, I can, to be honest. I know, I don't think yeah. any of us really yeah. can, mm. can really grasp mm. what that is like. And how detrimental that is going to be uh, to relationships. We're going to be, we all know ourselves that we, we need our own space. We need our own room. And even within families, people need to be able to escape for a little while to their, to their own corner. Uh, so, you know, if you have people all crammed together in, in, in one small space, uh, which is not their own, <clears throat> and which they have to, you know, to be very mindful of, of other people who may be resident in the area or whatever, you know, it's going to cause pressure, it's going to cause difficulties, it's going to cause relational problems uh, in the family. So uh, it's certainly, it's, it's not an answer. I mean, we need, I think we need to resource uh, local government to be able to, to meet the needs in their own particular local, local area. Perhaps uh, we can uh, return to the issue of refugees or more to the point where they're coming from because, as you say, many of them are trying to escape very troubled parts of uh, the world. Others aren't so lucky. Places like South Sudan, Syria, Somalia, the Democratic Republic of uh, the Congo, uh, areas of uh, the world uh, that Trokra is working with people and you're uh, calling on people to support uh, the annual Christmas appeal that uh, people will be familiar with uh, from Trocra. Yes, so I mean, coming to this time of the year, particularly as we uh, begin the, the season of Advent, you know, we look forward to the, the birth of the, of the Christ child. And we have to remember, you know, when he, when he was born, uh, his family were, were migrants. They, they had no home. <clears throat> they were homeless. They were looking for a place uh, to stay. And also very shortly after he was, he was born, 
they had to become refugees uh, in Egypt to escape persecution. Uh, you know, so it's a it's very telling, I think, at this time of the year that uh, we think of those, particularly those who who uh, uh, live without the basics uh, that we have, um, and to, to to contribute a little bit more to to charity at this time of the year in order to alleviate some of those problems. Uh, as Pope Francis uh, said fairly recently, you know, those who, who are paying the price uh, in the world are, are all always the, the little ones, the poor, uh, the most vulnerable, who are prevented from sitting at the table and are left with the crumbs of the banquet. And we, in the, in the first world, we are fortunate to be sitting at the table, even though we may not think it, we are extremely fortunate and uh, very wealthy in comparison to, to most of the world's population. So what is, is the majority of the world living on? They're living on the crumbs of our banquet, basically. So I, I think in the lead up to Christmas, we really have to, uh, to, to focus on seeing what we can do uh, to, to alleviate the pain and suffering of so many people around the world. And, and the most practical thing that we can do is, is, is to give to charity. Most of us won't be able to actually go out there and to do any practical work uh, to alleviate that suffering. But by giving something of our hard-earned cash to, uh, to people at this time of the year, uh, then I think we can, we can help to, to give witness and to do something practical to alleviate our problems. Okay. We have to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us here this morning. Thank you very much. That's Bishop Michael Reuter, Auxiliary Bishop of Armagh. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Martin from Dundalk is one of those listeners. He was listening into your interview with Deputy Imelda Munster at the top of the show, and he found the interview very worrying. Oh. He says, you have to wonder now, Michael, who has control over this hospital project because it just seems to be out of control. It's like it's not real money, but it is real money. And where is it all going to end? What's the problem, though? The problem is the never ending amount of money that's been spent on it. Right. Uh, But sure, there's plenty of money. Well, is there, Michael? Yeah. Well, Mairead from Drogheda feels that the, the money that's been spent on the hospital project mm. is far too much that it could be used for other things in the state. And she wants to know, is the Minister for Health overseeing this project? Is there not a cap on how much money can be spent? Mm. She yeah. wants to know. Well, there's a guaranteed maximum amount um, but that can be exceeded. Right. Even though it's guaranteed to that be the maximum. maximum. Yeah. Right. So once we go past that maximum, which is guaranteed, uh, we guarantee we won't exceed it. But once we exceed it, uh, well, then sure, who cares? I mean, there's a, a, an endless amount of money. Uh, or, unless Mairead is thinking about giving up work, is she? Oh, I doubt it. Well, if Mairead goes to work tomorrow, should there be plenty of money there? Should that's what she's working for, isn't it? Well, well, a good point I felt made by Declan who phoned in and says, Michael, yep. if you were building a house, you'd have X amount of money for the house. No, I wouldn't. And you'd have a little bit extra put, no, put by no, no. just in case of something yeah. unexpected. Mm. But that would be it. No. You wouldn't be able to keep 
adding to I the cost. Would. Adding to the I cost. I would. Adding I'd, to uh, the if cost. Declan was paying for my house, <laughs> I would spend as much as I wanted on it. And it, it, if I, I found it was going to cost more, I'd just go and take more money yes. off Declan. And therein lies the problem, yeah. isn't it? Because well, it's, it's not it's, a problem. Money, is it? It's not a whose problem. Money, it's no it? problem. Unless Declan is planning to give up work. <laughs> the arrogance mm. of this shower in government is astonishing, says Jim from, mm. La- from Navin. On so many levels. They will be rebuilding Ireland today, I suppose, and posing with their happy mm. faces on them for the media. Mm. I feel it's time for them to go. They have some brass necks on them. Shame on them, says Jim in Navin. I, I, I don't understand what Jim's problem is. The children's hospital is all that is wrong with governance in this country. But so there's Damien. nothing wrong with the children's hospital. This We're building is, it. This is taxpayers' money, Michael. That's been spent. Our money mm-hmm. that's been spent. And there's loads but of But there it. doesn't appear to be any accountability at the end of it all. God knows how much will have been spent when it is finally finished and when will that ever happen? Uh, It might be your money, but how much it costs, I don't think that's any of your business. (laughs) Uh, Asking questions like that, it's beyond belief. Uh, Taxpayers' money is not there to be thrown about, says Fran. And why not? It's there for the upkeep of our country and should be used properly. Why? (laughs) I, I, I mean, I think people are taking this too seriously. Like, I mean, uh, you know. A lot of outrage out there, Michael, over this. Yeah, well, and I, <laughs> as if it matters. As if, uh, I mean, there was a fellow working in uh, the National Treasury Management Agency who uh, some months ago uh, was doing some trading with Declan and Maraid's money. Uh, and uh, he was in the wrong currency. He thought he was in euros, but he was in dollars and he lost €750,000. Right. Just like that. Just Press like of that. a button. And do you know what? It didn't matter. It, it made no difference because, do you know what? Declan and Mairead went back to work the next day and he had more money then to spend. So that's it. Mm. I'll go to John from NAV and you mightn't be too happy what he has to say, first of all, Michael, because he says, you're lucky you didn't get to interview Regina Doherty, Michael, because yes, any time you've interviewed her, you are out of your depth, okay. says John mm, from yeah, NAV. Yeah, 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 yeah. He also adds that he was listening to your interview with Father Sean Healy yesterday oh. and he thought it was April Fool's Day, to be honest with you. Right. He says that uh, Sean Healy stated there were 750,000 people living in poverty and there were hundreds of thousands of people hungry. Do you not know, Michael, that one third of what goes into the landfill in this country is food? We have more food in this country that is needed. All you want is somebody to be able to cook it and prepare it for children. And he says that it's a load of nonsense what's been spoken about. Yeah, he's right. He's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think all of these people uh, who have no money should get some money. Uh, And. Perhaps uh, we'd have asked Regina to hurry some questions about issues like that. Uh, had uh, the Minister been available to us uh, this morning, obviously she's too busy with uh, that Cabinet meeting. Uh, but some of the questions that we might have asked of Regina Doherty were asked of Regina Doherty in the Dáil yesterday. So I suppose the first thing I'd say to you is, is that we, as a government, uh, are investing more in the infrastructure of our water um, than I think at any time in the history of the state. Why has this minister taken so long to bring the amendments that he said he would bring in? Because I believe he's trying to bury the bill. And I am insisting that this minister will not do that as far as I'm concerned, and hopefully as far as the people in this law are concerned and the opposition. Thank you. Again, um, Lascan Corla, I'll tell you, we're a minority government deputy. 
you know, if, if the democracy, the vote that was taken at the committee that day had gone a different way, we'd be having a different conversation. And so what I say to you again is, is that if you had consensus for your view, we wouldn't be in the position that we're in. And what I've said... Um, Deputies, please. Do you want Minister me to answer Darty, or do everybody want to have a little sir, sir, blather amongst yourselves? Minister like, Darty, who is responding... Sorry, Minister, sorry. Minister Doherty is responding to Deputy Collins's question. Exactly. The thing, Deputy O'Brien, about leaders' questions is, is you get to ask a question and then you're supposed to listen for the answer, not, not uh, slag Deputy, as Deputy you always O'Brien. do. Slag as uh, you always deputies, do. Deputies, please. I'm going to so move on. There'll be no answer. There'll be no answer. I'm going to move on. It's, it's time to cry stop, and surely it is time to declare uh, statutorily uh, a housing and homelessness emergency. Again, Deputy, with respect, I obviously don't agree with you because we have a housing system that was uh, entirely broken when we took over and launched Rebuilding Ireland in 2016. We have people who were in negative equity arising from the Great Recession for donkey's years. And apart from the fact that the facts are speaking for itself and the number of bills and houses that are being provided for our citizens is growing year on year, the plan has been modified to take into account the advice that experts are giving us. And we will continue to do so. How do you defend to a parent of a child on a waiting list for an occupational therapist for their child that the HSE cannot get, cannot get approval for funding for an occupational therapist while we're spending over, we're going to budget for this children's hospital will go over by 50 billion, including by 2.9 million this year. 2.9 million minister would employ an awful lot of occupational therapists. Minister Doherty. It's a real pity that you would resort to language like vanity project for a project that has been much needed in this country for nearly two generations. Fianna Fáil were in power for 27 years of the last maybe 35 uh, years and not even a sniff other than the 50 million that you wasted on the project in the Matter right. Hospital. Right. I think You're it's a real pity that you would descend to that You're level. So I tell you, I tell you, I tell you what I'll ask Darby. you to do, Deputy because your attempt to try and link the fact that we have recruitment challenges up and down the country across an awful lot uh, of uh, professions uh, to the National Children's Hospital, which is a project that will be delivered by this government. That's Minister Regina Doherty. Uh, the minister was in charge in uh, the doll yesterday and she slapped him down, didn't she? One and all. We heard interaction uh, with Regina Doherty from Joan Collins, uh, Seamus Healy, Ono Brin and Dara O'Brien. Can I go to the farmers now, Michael, mm. because we've had some comments in uh, on that. Seamus from Drogheda phoned in. He says, the farmers blocked Dublin last week because they wanted the talks. Now they've got the talks and they are still blocking people. It is mob rule and I'm surprised that they are being treated with kids' glove, gloves. If it was any other workforce, Michael, they'd be hounded out of it, says Seamus. Okay. What about workers, says Mary, in these supermarket distribution mm. centres that are being affected by the blockades? The farmers have no consideration or thought for them. It's an absolute disgrace. Seamus says, a different Seamus, mm. that the farmers are taking this action because they are at rock bottom. Okay. And if we mm. want to preserve and protect, protect the beef industry in this country, 
then we need to listen to the farmers. Okay. So All right. Yeah. Diverse views so there of ever, yes. yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We'll finish on that, Michael. All right. Thanks for that. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's being said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 185715958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Independent TD for Louth, Peter Fitzpatrick is in studio with us. In a few minutes' time, I'm sure he'll tell us why he believes Owen Murphy would be sacked if he was working in the private sector. But before we talk about housing, let's uh, talk for a moment, if we can, about Lisa Smith, uh, who has uh, been charged uh, with... uh, crimes related to, to terrorism uh, she will face trial undoubtedly in uh, the new year you haven't had a, a chance to speak to her, her family since uh, the last time you spoke to us have you Peter? No Michael the last time I spoke to the family was uh, before Lisa come home uh, the family's delighted that Lisa's home uh, they're, they're delighted that the grandchild is now living with uh, Lisa's parents uh, as I said yeah, from day one uh, the family came into my consistency office and asked me for better help the help they wanted was to get the daughter and the, and the grandchild home uh, Lisa was in a, was in a war zone uh, and her life was in danger and the grandchild's life was in danger mm-hmm. they never ever met the grandchild so Michael as I said before is I got on to, to Simon Coveney the minister and the tarnisher I got on to Family Affairs I done my best and to help Lisa coming home the family told me that, that Lisa was innocent she's not a member of ISIS she's not, she's not a member of a terrorist organisation she's no activities she never had a gun these, these are things that the family told me mm-hmm. and, uh, and in fairness uh, uh, I done my best now Lisa's home uh, I have no contact whatsoever with the family so the family has engaged now with the solicitors mm. uh, Lisa's, Lisa's been charged at the moment and uh, our, legal, our legal team will look after her uh, You were criticised uh, for representing the family in the way that you have been on this programme uh, by Dr Declan Hayes last week uh, and uh, for voting uh, for a government amendment to a doll motion that was put forward by Claire Daly and Mick Wallace in December two years ago uh, do you wish to respond to those criticisms? Well first of all uh, I, I don't know who Declan Hayes is and I don't have a problem uh, I, I, I listen to your podcast mm. uh, I don't have a problem if Declan wants to contact me my mobile number is 086 251257 all my constituents have my mobile number people in the area have my, my mobile number it's nothing to hide uh, and, and he was correct on the 7th of December there was there was two motions by, uh, by Fianna Gael uh, Claire Daly was involved and Mick Wallace was involved and uh, uh, wasn't Declan made a comment that uh, that uh, Jerry Adams, Imelda Monster, and Fergus the Dead uh, uh, voted, and uh, they didn't vote. Uh, what happened there was uh, uh, there was two votes. One vote was eighty for Tor and thirty seven need and and uh, in fairness. Uh, of all the local TDs, uh, Declan Bannock, Fergus O'Dell and myself all voted with the government. With the government and, amendment, yes. yes, yes yeah. And mm-hmm. the Mel- mm-hmm. Monster voted uh, with, the, with the opposition. But I'm just trying to say that at, at the moment is uh, people can come into my constituency offices. I, I told you I've, I've one of the most busiest constituency offices in the country. They come in and look for a bit of help, a bit mm. of advice. And I would not be doing my job if a family came in to me and asked me for a bit of help. I'm no judge and jury. Uh, I never I never met and I don't know anything about Lisa Smith. As I said, as the family told me that she will come home she and, and she will defend herself and she thinks she's innocent. Uh, as I said, uh, the guard of security intelligence involved, the guard of special detective units involved. Uh, she's getting, she's getting, she's getting legal legal requirements. She's also looking, looking after uh, her medical needs. Mm. As I said, yeah, uh, there's a family in the dog, very, very happy to have their grandchild home for Christmas. I'm a family man, and family always comes first to me. The mum is. So if Lisa is guilty or not guilty, the system will will, will look after Lisa.
All right, let's talk about housing if we can. Uh, you were telling the doll uh, that Owen Murphy would be sacked if uh, he had a job like that in the private sector and uh, you spoke about some of uh, the figures in your own county. In Louth, there's 4,763 people on the social housing waiting list and 2,990 people who are in receipt of HAP. Listen, I, I believe David English, the minister, was on your programme during the week and uh, mm. he was on about uh, you can pick any kind of figures you want. The bottom line is, I don't cherry pick. Like in my consistency offices, there's families coming in, they've mental health problems, their relationships are breaking down. Is All people want is a home. Mm. Like the government said this year, they're spending 2.4 billion trying to get 10,000 social houses. The bottom line is, people want their house. Like 10,500 people uh, homeless. One told of them they were children. All they want is a home. And I tell you, when you see a child or a mother or a father sitting in your consistency office, tears come down their eyes. All they want is help. I'm telling you now the moment is, if, 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 if old Murphy, and I said to him, if old Murphy was working in the public sector, he would be absolutely psyched. You look, take for example, is like every time the minister uh, is up, oh, give, 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 me, give, you know, give me solutions. Since I became an independent TD, I have spoken on housing and health in many, many occasions. And no matter how many times you speak and give them solutions, they just don't want to listen. Mm. Like, there's 31 local authorities in this country. The amount of land they have at the moment is. And if you look at it, there's thousands of employees working at the moment. Is. You have planners, you have enforcement laws. If, like, they don't realise, like, this, is, this solution could be solved tomorrow. Mm. Like, you take even, I mentioned, in the dark alone, or in loud. There's over a hundred unoccupied houses at the moment. Is a hundred houses that would take free all money to get sorted at the moment. What's happening is people are giving up the houses, or people dying, mm-hmm. and the houses are becoming vacant. Now these houses have been left for months and maybe years before they're done up, and that's where the damage coming in. And nobody has confidence in the government policies. Uh, certainly, the majority of TDs don't have confidence in government policies, despite the position the Fianna Fáil took, which was not to vote in line with that. But the vote in itself was very curious and very tight. The government hung on by the skin of its teeth and quite literally because they said had they lost the vote, it would have resulted in a general election. If Darren Murphy had been gone 12 hours previously, if Thomas Pringle had been available, instead of winning by three, they'd have won by one vote. So it couldn't have been tighter. Was there communication with you from the government? Uh, did the government try to secure your support? Yes, Michael, the, the government rang me up and uh, we were arranged to meet up at nine o'clock. Uh, this is the second time the government in the last six months approached me. Uh, the last time, six, uh, four or five months ago, uh, Simon Howard had a no-vote confidence and uh, they decanted me twice in that occasion and uh, under no circumstances would I ever vote for, for Simon Howes as Minister because to me he's an absolutely disaster mm. he's one but of the were, they, were they willing to offer you something in return for your support oh yeah Michael I, I, I didn't get to that stage Michael because in fairness like like I just mm. no time for that man whatsoever because even listening to the innovative session this morning there's 215,000 children on a waiting list and I, I, one thing I will say I, I, I give him credit for credit to is he's in the wrong vocation he, to me, he's a universal debater. He can talk, he can talk, and he can mm. talk. But there's one thing he can't, he can't walk. The same thing with Owen Murphy. Mm. Uh, Owen Murphy, uh, and it's not a good get Owen Murphy is not capable of being Minister of Housing. But, but when, he, when the government met with you, Peter Fitzpatrick, as an independent TD, trying to get your support in a vote that could have toppled the government, 
they were bargaining, were they? They were willing to offer you something, they were willing to cut a deal. Well, uh, well Michael, as I said to you, they came to me twice. On, on the Simon Howes issue, they wanted to know what I wanted. And in, in two occasions I met them, I told them, no matter what the offer me was, I had no interest whatsoever in, 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 in voting in favour of keeping Simon Howes in the job. Uh, they, they, they contacted me on Tuesday and they wanted to meet me at 9 o'clock on Tuesday. I met mm. them at 9 o'clock Tuesday evening up in the Fine Gael Whip's office. When I sat down, directly in front of me was a big blackboard. On the blackboard, I had seen I seen fifty six, fifty three. So they had they mm. knew exactly okay. what it was. So uh, so 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 two of the fifty six were independent TDs. Three of them. Uh, Dennis Docton uh, has said that he got something. He got adjustments to the fair deal scheme. Uh, do you think that the other two got something? Do you think that Michael Larry cut a deal? And do you think that Noel Grealish cut a deal? Well, put it this way, Michael. Uh, when, when, when Simon Howes was, was looking for my vote to save his job, I know that Fine Gael went to Dennis Nocton two or three occasions because when they came to me and I just told him bluntly, no way whatsoever was I going to vote in, in favour of that there. Now, I believe on Tuesday uh, that, that they, had, they had problems because they, they knew the feeling I had that, 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 that as an independent TD, my two main things at the moment is health and housing. And there was no way whatsoever that I was going to vote in favour. I didn't want a general election. The public didn't want a general election. At the same time, too, people don't want to be homeless over Christmas. So they knew in their heart and their soul that no matter what they offer me, but there must be another severe pressure to arrange to meet me at 9 o'clock on, on Tuesday evening. But the bottom line, mm. I, now, I, I know my heart and my soul is, I think that the, the problem they had was with, uh, with, with Dennis Nocton. I think Dennis Dennis, Dennis was whole night for something. I believe he got a mm, deal, mm. and uh, and once Dennis got his deal, uh, when I went to meet him, it was a completely different story. Do you think Michael Larry got a deal? Yes, Michael, I, I do. But I do. Mm. I do because the government I, said they'd never go into deals I, with them, didn't they? Yes, listen, uh, as I said to you, like, there's more than one person knows whether Michael Lowry got a deal, maybe mm. down the road, maybe 12 months or two years, or maybe when Michael Lowry uh, leaves the doll, he might write a book and make millions out of telling his stories, what deals he done with Fine Gael over the last number of years. Or maybe before the next election, if he decides to stand uh, again, we'll read about it in the Tipperary Star again. Yeah. But my, 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 my big concern at the moment is, uh, like, People don't realise mm. it. Like the amount of families is breaking up there at the moment is the amount of mental health. Like mm. these, th- there's money going from one department to another department. Is I just honestly think now, if the government ran the government as a business, put the right people in place. Like, uh, but it, it, it seems to me from what you're saying that the government isn't being altogether honest with us because the government said it would never do a deal with Michael Larry. It said it would never rely on his support in order to stay in office. Uh, and from what you're saying to us, it's clear that it has done exactly that. Uh, despite the adverse findings against Michael Lowry by the Moriarty Tribunal, uh, despite the lack of support for Michael Lowry when he stood up in the doll the other night to say that he was not a, a tax dodger, I don't think uh, any government representative uh, came out to support that position. And indeed, I asked Damien English about it directly and he said he didn't want to get involved in the spat between Michael Lowry and Paul Murphy. But it, it seems clear that Michael Lowry has done a deal with the government or more to the point that the government has done a deal with Michael Lowry. On the other hand, then, we have the government condemning Noel Grealish uh, out of hand for comments that he made about Africans coming here, sponging off the state, saying that he was wrong and racist and all of this sort of thing. And from what you're saying, they've done a deal with this person. Michael, your listeners can make them all mine up. I know, I, I believe it's this week, uh, I believe there's either an extension or there's a, there's a 40 bedroom uh, hospital coming out today. It's been announced this week in Clamel, uh, which is, which is, which is uh, Michael Lowry's uh, uh, area. So so it's, it's basically up. Listen, you can make your own mind up. Listen, uh, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, I think whoever's in government always seem to do deals. Uh, as I said, he was. Uh, 
with the Simon Howard situation was uh, Fine Gael made me a couple of offers and asked me what I wanted uh, when it came to uh, Owen Murphy they knew they were wasting their time so mm. at 9 o'clock there was no need I'm just going to say this this government is going to have to cop itself on at the moment when though because I mean we were told last week it was over it, it may not be over John McGuinness Fianna Fáil TD now has said that he'd vote uh, 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 against Owen Murphy if there was to be another vote of confidence in him, uh, Sinn Féin have a, a motion on housing next week. Is this over before Christmas? I don't think so. I think John McGuinness had an opportunity on Tuesday night. I think you know, like, you know, Sinn Féin has loads and loads of opportunities to do what it, what they want to do. Is like I think, but the problem with Sinn Féin is I personally don't think Sinn Féin's ready for the general election because uh, listen to the Sinn Féin TDs talking in the doll. They keep saying, "Oh, listen, don't worry. Uh, if you vote again the government, uh, there'll be no general election." You know, this, like any good. The bottom line is, uh, I personally think that the Minister, Owen Murphy, is not capable of doing a job. I think he was in the public sector, he would be sacked. If if, if, if I was employing Owen Murphy, and I was getting Owen Murphy billions and billions, and the next thing, every time I looked, the figures were going up and everything, it's it's, it's a total and utter, utter shambles. As I said to you, there's, there's ways out of this here at the moment is, get the, the right people in the right jobs. Owen Murphy, Simon Hobbs, get rid of them now. There is good people in the door that will do the job at the moment. Now, when it comes to advisors, I heard you, you on this morning, uh, on, on by Regina Doherty, uh, uh, employing advisors and paying this over the limit. I'm going to be straight with Michael is, if I think we can get the right people in to get our health system in place, our housing in place, I think whatever money has to be paid to pay them people at the moment is. But I say whether they're, whether the project managers or whether the architects, we need to get the system up and running. I like the, the HSE. I, I contact the HSE in numerous times. I find them very very helpful and they do help me. I contact the local authorities to do help me. But the problem is they're, they're, they're tight. Now whether the budgets, whether the budgets are wrong or the budget, the money being allocated wrong is we have an opportunity. This this country has a chance of doing things right. I believe the Shekels took in an extra six hundred million there recently last month. Like that's 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 a lot, a lot of money is. Where's that money gonna be spent? Like like James Riley years ago when he was Minister for Health, like the patient, you know, the money follows the patients. Let's for once and for all is I, I go on holidays, I might go to Spain, I might go to some other place in the, in the world. I, I I don't seem to have a problem with the health system. But listen, we have the money, it's just we don't have the like you take for example in Lloyd, the amount of land bank land we have in mm. Lloyd. The department requested and made the local authorities buy land. And the problem at the moment is the, the local authorities can't pay the loan. All they're doing at the moment is paying the interest. So come in, sit down, Minister Murphy, Minister English, please sit down with all the local authorities and find out what the problem is. If I had a business and I had 31 branches working with me, I'd be mm. delighted. That's 31 CEOs of local authorities want to help. And, and, and just, they're money. Just, the money just, just, just very quickly and to conclude, uh, Michael Larry may have got a deal, Noel Grealish may have got a deal, Dennis Doctor may have got a, did get a deal, uh, Peter Fitzpatrick might have got a, a deal, you chose not to negotiate. Uh, was that the right thing to do? I mean, could you not have got more housing for County Louth uh, had you supported Owen Murphy? Michael, th- this government is full of promises. All this government, honestly, this government will tell you absolutely anything you want to hear. As I said to you, Owen Murphy and Simon House mm. has totally missed their vocations. They should be in university debates team because I said to you, Michael, from day one, is them two can talk to talk, 
but they can't walk the walk. Okay. This government is full of false promises. The money's in the economy. Unemployment is, is, is the lowest ever is. Now we've got an opportunity. Please fix the country. Please make Christmas happy for, for that homeless family. Is. As I said to you, mental health, break up relationships, the strain on these families is, is second to none. And this government has an opportunity to please put things right. Thank you very much indeed for coming in to us uh, this morning. Independent TD in Louth, Peter Fitzpatrick. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the idea of getting to hospital is always uh, one uh, that is uh, dealt uh, with much seriousness, but getting there is one thing. Getting into the hospital can be another thing. We're joined by Paul Bell, who's SIP2 Health Division Organiser. A very good morning to you, Paul Bell. Good morning, Thanks Michael. for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, perhaps uh, you tell us a, a little bit about Margaret Callaghan uh, and the experience that the late Mrs Callaghan experienced? Well, this was the subject of a, an inquest in Letter Kenny uh, uh, earlier in the week, uh, whereby Miss um, uh, Callaghan was um, reportedly very unwell at home, literally five minutes away from Letter Kenny University Hospital. Uh, her family uh, r- uh, called for the ambulance service to assist. Uh, there were two ambulances located at Letterkenny University Hospital. Both were engaged uh, as both uh, ambulance crews were attending the patients. Couldn't discharge the patient or basically uh, hand over the patient safely to the emergency department and therefore those two ambulances could not be dispatched. So they were parked up at the hospital? At the hospital, yeah. Mm. Uh, What uh, then took place was that the... In in terms of the personnel, just to explain that, in terms of the personnel... They weren't really doing anything. They were waiting. They're sitting with the patients. Yeah. They are, they're, yeah. they're patients. And very important that they do. Patients are in the, in the charge mm. of the ambulance crew mm. until formally mm. transferred over to sure. the emergency department. But, but, but in terms of their duty uh, and the mm. care that they would give to that patient, that should have ended there and handed over to the emergency department. Yeah. But they were waiting for that to happen. Yeah. They couldn't actually dis- discharge their duty at that point. For how long? Uh, one was, as I understand, mm. it was five hours. One was two hours. Uh, because the emergency department was so busy. So busy uh, in that hospital, which it would be, uh, and has been many issues that, with that mm. emergency, particular emergency department. What was taken then was a decision to dispatch an ambulance from Dunglow, which I understand geographically is some 40 miles away. Mm. Uh, not only that, the road system there wouldn't be like what we would have here in the M1. Mm. Uh, that would take its time. Uh, the family uh, were frantic about waiting for the ambulance to arrive, and then uh, I think, and I just uh, you may have to correct me here, Michael, but I think some two and a half hours or three hours after the initial calls were made, um, two ambulances arrived at the one time. The one from Dunlow, which had been dispatched and had uh, at breakneck speed. Uh, you know, arrived at the scene, but also during that period, one of the ambulances became free at Letterkenny University Hospital and arrived at the same time. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, um, according to the coroner uh, and the inquest, this issue would have made a contribution uh, to, to that particular citizen's uh, debt. Now, we've in representing ambulance personnel, representing ambulance professionals. Uh, this has had a fairly devastating effect on the ambulance personnel, not only in in Letter, Letter Kenny or Donegal, but right throughout the country. Because only two weeks ago, uh, SIPTU made it quite clear 
uh, of a great deal of dissatisfaction with the ongoing situation in Cork University Hospital, where ambulances will be were being held at the emergency department for between two and two and a half hours. Big city, mm. big county, big mm. catchment area, uh, and uh, ambulance crews could not uh, free themselves from discharging the patient and then becoming back in coming back into the system. Mm. Uh, the issue that we have from arising from this, and, and, and we're very grateful, where we obviously offer our condolences to the family and friends. We are somewhat grateful, and this has been highlighted, yeah. that this is an issue not just for Letterkenny University Hospital. It's been an issue in our local hospitals here, Our Lady of Lords. Mm. It's been an issue in mm. Navan. It's been an issue in Beaumont Hospital. We've had some very serious issues there, and this is an area that would be serviced by that hospital, the Matter Hospital. Uh, then you go into St. Vincent's or Tala. And the issue for us is here, while it's identified that this is a serious problem, uh, the emergency department management, that system, cooperating with the ambulance management, uh, do not seem to be able to, uh, I suppose, come to a position where how this is going to be avoided. Mm. Now, we've looked at other ambulance services throughout the world, and in situations where you have huge volume, high capacity. What we're saying is, and ambulance professionals are saying, there should be some type of care within the emergency department that can care for the patient, allowing the ambulance crew to go back into the ambulance vehicle and be available for duty, while at the same time understanding that the patient is being cared for. Just to explain, Michael, that many listeners may not notice how the system actually operates. Mm. Once the patient uh, is basically taking into the care of the ambulance crew until such time as the patient is removed from the stretcher mm. in the emergency department mm. that patient remains in the care of the ambulance crew and they give excellent care to that patient at that time but they understand that the colleagues in the emergency department may say it's unsafe for us to take this patient in now so therefore cannot sign the patient off mm. for a patient transfer. Yeah, well the patient has to be under absolutely medical supervision yeah. until yeah. seen and assessed. Now remember a by lot of, a doctor <coughs> in the emergency absolutely. department. Remember a lot of the information mm. that the emergency department mm. has received before that patient comes to the hospital mm. is from the ambulance mm. crew themselves. So the the staff in the emergency department have some good key information before the patient mm. arrives at the emergency department. Okay, Margaret Callahan was 71 when she died she left behind some eight children Mm -hmm. uh, incredible waited 71 minutes for an ambulance to arrive to her home even though she lived six minutes away from where an ambulance was parked up outside of the emergency department Mm -hmm. but as you said one of those ambulances had been parked outside of that emergency department for six and a half hours Mm -hmm. and a second one for three and a half three and a half hours uh, which is quite possibly a contributor to her death, according mm-hmm. to the according, inquest. According to the inquest. Mm-hmm. The issue here is, Michael, that the senior ambulance officer that appeared at the inquest has made it quite clear that this issue is not solely an issue in Letterkenny General Hospital. Mm. It's also an issue around the country at different times of the year. Mm. What we Why? Are, well, it's mainly because of overcrowding in the emergency department that the ambulance service has now become somewhat of an extension to the emergency department mm. when it actually shouldn't be it should be uh, a service that's co- uh, collaborating with the emergency department the, the difficulty that air members have is that they have requested a new protocol to be put in place where patients can receive some level of care even if you don't need emergency care when they arrive at the emergency department 
therefore allowing the ambulance crew to be released. Mm. Remember, the equipment also being used with that patient cannot be taken back into the ambulance until the, this, this, um, the actual patient transfer. Do you believe transfer. that this will be an ongoing problem? Oh, I believe it will d- be, yeah. Despite the winter yeah, plan? Absolutely. Well, I, I'm, I'm really coming here today, Michael, to mm. share the concerns of our members. They are saying this is not going to change. The, the medical director of the ambulance service the, the, is saying the, it's not going to the change. The government gave us the impression yesterday that it has changed, that additional funding has been put placed under the winter plan for the hospitals. Yes. And that this won't happen again. Well, Michael, I believe that you and I will be sitting here, if not in January, but in February, hopefully not having mm. a conversation with the gravity that we're having now, but where ambulance crews will not be able to safely transfer their patients to emergency department right. staff. Right, we'll, we'll hear just a little bit of what yeah. is said to have changed. It was raised in the doll yesterday by Dara O'Brien of Fianna Fáil. The response came uh, from Fine Gael TD and Minister for Social Protection, Regina Doherty. Specific funding has been allocated to the winter action teams to support all of the initiatives at local level. And the initiatives for this particular area include uh, the reablement programme to assist in reducing presentations and admissions, additional medical registrars um, who are senior decision makers and so the extra staff that you've pointed out that are needed are going to be put in place additional aids and appliances to facilitate the discharge of people when they need to be discharged as opposed to keeping them in hospital when they shouldn't be there and addition rapid flu testing kits and local PCR flu testing to reduce the length of stays, facilitate diagnosis and treatment of flu patients to reduce isolation demand and reduce the impacts of the outbreaks that we know are going to come We're also going to reduce patient experience times and trolley numbers through a speedier turnaround of the beds and management of infection control by providing uh, additional cleaning hours. And all of that, whilst it doesn't directly impact what happened in this tragedy, does obviously have a knock-on effect as to when our ambulances arrive, if there's nobody to take the people and the presentations of the citizens in those ambulances into the hospital, then obviously that's where the backlog comes. All right, that's uh, Regina Doherty, or at least the voice of Regina <laughs> Doherty. Just to explain to people uh, how this works, uh, she was responding to Fianna Fáil during leaders' questions, mm-hmm. deputising for the Taoiseach, uh, who wasn't uh, there yesterday. So Fianna Fáil submits this question. The question is put to the government. The response is written. You can hear that yes. Regina Doherty it's is clearly script, reading yes. the script. Uh, and it's written by the top o- o- officials. So there's the official mm-hmm. considered response. Uh, and... In all essence, we're being told this won't happen again, that the necessary resources being put in place, Paul Bell. Well, I have to say I I challenge that. Uh, The first time we've ever spoken about ambulance response times and transfer of patients from ambulances into emergency departments was back in 2014 in this very studio. That resulted in a joint Oireachtas Committee on Health and the Ambulance Service and the capacity of the Ambulance Service to respond to the citizens' needs all over the country. What was discovered from that, and highlighted of course, is the fact that emergency departments, when they are overcrowded, that issue spills off into other services, which includes, but not exclusively, the ambulance service. So the ambulance service crew become part of the emergency department response. But the Minister has said there, and I have no doubt that that's very fully researched by the Mm -hmm. civil servants, Mm -hmm. uh, that may give some comfort to government. Uh, but it does not give comfort to the ambulance professionals that we represent and other people who work in the emergency department, such as healthcare assistants, nursing professionals. Okay. And I'm just saying, Michael, if if citizens believe 
what's being said there. I'm asking them to be really questioning. How can you resolve an issue like this over a period of weeks when you couldn't do it over a period of years? All right. Remember, Cork University Hospital had this issue two weeks ago as well. Okay, have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for coming in to us uh, this morning. Paul Bell, SIP2 Health Division Organiser. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about open disclosure or mandatory open disclosure amongst health professionals with Stephen McMahon, spokesperson for the Irish Patients Association. A very good morning to you, Stephen, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us as always on uh, the programme. My granddad used to tell a joke about uh, a patient in hospital and the doctor said to him, do you want the good news or the bad news? And he said, oh, give, give us the good news. And he said, well, we amputated the leg without any problem whatsoever. And he said, well, what's the bad news? And he said, oh, it was the wrong leg. Uh, yeah. which, I've heard I know, on that one, all right. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And I know it might seem like a, a bad joke, but it, it highlights how things can go wrong. Uh, and unfortunately, they do. But when they go wrong, uh, undoubtedly, you'd know if it was the wrong leg. Uh, but it's not always the case. And uh, this new legislation or proposed legislation will put a, an onus on health professionals to inform people of what happened. Indeed. And, um, you know, like this is to be welcomed, the announcements that the patient safety bill now is at last going to go forward for um, for final approval. But to put it in context um, for your listeners, uh, there was a report published about two or three years ago. The, as far as I know, the only report that actually looked at adverse events in our Irish hospitals and it looked at the um, care that was given to patients in 2009 as sort of a benchmark. And what they found out was that almost um, uh, one in eight patients admitted had actually had a preventable, um, uh, sorry, one in eight uh, patients had experienced an adverse event. And of that, they're saying that 70% were were preventable. So, you know, there is a huge challenge in there uh, insofar as that um, preventable errors are occurring and that, you know, at, at, at best, it, it may not have any impact on the patient. But I'm sorry to say that on the other side, at worst, uh, some patients do die or are injured mm. in a way that they would have a permanent disability going forward. And, so, and as you say, this has been known for some time, but uh, this uh, bill has come about as a result of the inquiry into cervical check and recommendation from uh, Dr. Gabriel Scully. Well, indeed. I mean, there. besides the Irish Patients Association, there have been a number of other patient advocates that have been advocating for a mandatory statutory disclosure of when uh, adverse events occur. Or indeed, when uh, new information comes to the, uh, to the hospital or to the uh, treating physicians uh, about how a particular uh, patient's uh, well-being developed or did not develop and so on, and that you would, the onus is actually to disclose. So the new bill is really setting up um, that, the, that open disclosure would be there for, as you say there, if surgery is performed on the wrong patient at the wrong site resulting in, um, in death or the wrong surgical procedure is performed in a patient resulting in unintended death. Uh, And again, um, the unintended retention of a foreign object in a patient after surgery, we often come across Mm. these sorts of scenarios. So there is a schedule there of the kind of um, events that would be considered serious enough for the um, for the uh, hospital and the surgeon and the medical team. And the foreign uh, object could be anything from uh, cloth to medical equipment, uh, and the consequences Absolutely. of all of that can be very serious. Uh, but I always thought that the reason 
that hospitals and health professionals were not forthcoming with this type of information was because of fear of being sued, uh, because it's an admission of liability, isn't it? When you say you made a mistake, uh, then you're legally uh, held uh, responsible for it. Uh, But the idea of this legislation is that people will learn from it rather than be blamed for it. Well, it's to try and create a culture. As I say, you know, that study a few years ago showed up that there were literally thousands of events um, that were happening. And if we don't, uh, if the system isn't made aware of what's actually happening, um, well, then how can it ever change? Again, looking back at that study, they said, why after 30 years had so little progress been made in the area of um, patient safety? And there is also the, the Civil Liabilities Bill, which actually has the other side of that is that disclosure uh, should be made to patients when it may not be very serious, but that you know that they have a right to be told when something happens to them. But th- th- it, there will be challenges here from the point of view of implementation. For example, let's say uh, some patient is given um, penicillin uh, by accident, and uh, you know mm. there's no problem to it, but there was a, a wrong a wrong dose of, of, of a particular drug. But you give pe- penicillin to a patient that could have an adverse reaction to it. And it now becomes a very serious event. So it it has to be the the event as the impact was on the on the patient, as opposed to do you know what I mean? A classification of a medication error. And would it mean that red lights would be lit sooner, and uh, scandals uh, such as uh, the cervical check scandal uh, would uh, be prevented uh, from becoming as big as that did? Well, certainly the cervical screening debacle really arose out of the fact that uh, that information had not been disclosed uh, to the unfortunate women uh, that it should have been. And, you know, the Scali report uh, really uh, identified this issue on open disclosure and found indeed errors in the way that the policy was being implemented by the HSC by actually going back to research and finding out that... Um, the research to which the uh, hate to see policy was referring to uh, was not complete, and um, you know, so that uh, so that we have this now. How would I say? Uh, really, sort of well drafted um, uh, program to disclose to patients, and it will it will take time for it to to bed down because, as you quite rightly pointed out, there. Um, you know, it, it, it's as much developing trust amongst the healthcare professionals themselves yeah. uh, to practice open disclosure. And there are protections in the bills to protect people who are disclosing. But at the mm. end of the day, it's the patient's right to know. And that is the important aspect of the patient safety bill. And the you have a right there. to know mm-hmm. because it's the law. And mm. that is what advocates have been saying about this for many years. Okay. The, you know, so the change last year by the Taoiseach and the, and the Minister for Health from the uh, way that they were looking at it to actually put it into law has to be welcomed. Okay, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Stephen McMahon, a spokesperson for the Irish Patients Association who brings our programme to its conclusion for this week. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.